0: Welcome to Bone to Pick. I'm Michael Davis. We are coming to you today from Hunter College here on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I am very excited to be interviewing our two artists of the month this month. They are Marshall Jilkes and Ryan Keberly, two of the bright young stars in the jazz world and the brass world. Uh, they are both virtuoso-level trombonists, brilliant composers, um, very inspired educators. They are complete musicians in every sense of the word, and, uh, and they're doing it at the highest level. So I am really looking forward to uh, getting their insight into how they've achieved so much greatness in their young careers and uh, how they're approaching the music business, the challenging music business that it is today. I think this is going to be a really fascinating hour. So uh, first of all, Marshall and Ryan, thanks so much for uh, being on Bonapig today.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for having here. us.
0: Yeah, great stuff. Um, let's start off maybe talking about, I think a lot of our viewers, of course, know who you guys are, but uh, maybe talk a little bit about your background, maybe uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, some of your experiences as a young professional. And uh, I know the three of us have in common that uh, our dads were uh, or are uh, musicians and music educators. So maybe you could touch on uh, what kind of an impact that might have had uh, on you. And maybe, uh, Ryan, maybe we'll start with you. Sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, not only is my dad a, a jazz trumpet player, music educator, but my mom is also a music educator. She plays the piano. Hmm. Um, she started me on the piano when I was uh, r- really young. And her parents, my grandparents, are both music educators in the junior high and oh, wow. high school level. Um, in fact, my grandpa started my dad on trumpet when he was, you know, twelve years old. Oh, they, they grew fantastic. up together. So wow. no, it runs deep. Um, and and certainly, I'm a, a, a big proponent of music education and jazz education. And um, you know, I still see jazz education as a kind of um, um, burgeoning sort of art form, really, or or, or, or um, um, world. Just you know, you think about how long people have had uh, time to figure out how to teach math. Mm-hmm. You know, three thousand years, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and you know, jazz has been, we've been teaching jazz for about sixty years. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely am excited about you know uh, figuring that 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 out. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of my upbringing, that played a huge role. I mean, I was attending concerts for as long as I can remember. Um, I, have, I have memories when I was a little kid conducting along with the Four Seasons, you know, stand, standing on a makeshift podium. And, and uh, yeah, music was a really important part of my life. In fact, my whole family played music. We had a family band growing up. My sister played bass. My other sister played drums, both younger than me. Like the um, uh, the partridge family of jazz. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes, Spokane, Washington. <laughs> yeah, and my dad and I did a little singing. My sister sang. so it, it was it was a whole it was a whole show. Cool. Yeah, it, but uh, very important part. And I, I always knew I would be working uh, in some capacity as a professional musician. Um, although certainly not at first. My very first year of college, I um, went to study physics at uh, a school that my dad teaches at in Spokane, Washington, called Whitworth University, and. Um, realized that I couldn't do that and pursue music. Obviously, music is an all-encompassing pursuit. So um, that's when I transferred to New York, 99, to go to Manhattan School of Music, studied with um, Steve Teray, who was a a phenomenal teacher for me at the time, Um, studied arranging with Michael Abene and Manny Album. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I went on, and actually it was done. I transferred in, so I was able to finish quick, and I um, was sort of burnt out uh, you know, with the school thing, but the Juilliard Jazz program was just starting at the time, and um, they made us an offer we couldn't refuse. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I did two years there for a, um, for a graduate degree and studied with Wycliffe, studied with um, Wycliffe Gordon, in case maybe people aren't on a first-name basis mm-hmm. with <laughs> Um And uh, studied with David Berger mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. uh, which was an, uh, all great teachers and certainly owe a great deal to all of them and other mentors I've met along the way.
3: Yeah very, cool. yeah, very cool. Marshall, how about yourself? Um, let's see. I, my father was in the military when I was growing up. So he was a conductor in the, um, the Air Force Band program. You know? So I was actually born in uh, Washington, D.C., and then I lived, um, we moved around quite a bit. So I lived in New Hampshire, New Jersey, Alabama for a year. And then, not that there's anything wrong with Alabama, but <laughs> Alabama for a year, and then uh, Illinois for four years, and then finally Colorado. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, my father was a conductor in the Air Force Bands program, and so I was constantly you know, going to those concerts and, and around those musicians. Um, and then my mother uh, taught piano lessons and voice lessons at home. And uh, my brother was like a boy soprano in the American Boy Choir when I was a kid. Oh, incredible. Um, and then he was a pianist as well. Um, and then kind of played bass later, and then did kind of got followed the path into like studio engineering and stuff, so. Um, but yeah, I ended up in Colorado, and then I left my senior year of high school. I went to Interlock and Arts Academy for my senior year. And then I went back to Colorado for my first year of college. Mm-hmm. Um, I sound like a nomad, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, back to, uh, I went to the University of Northern Colorado for a year where I had a, a great teacher by the name of Buddy Baker. Sure. I got to stay yeah. with him for a year. Um, and then I left uh, that school after a year and I wanted to be in the New York area, so I went to William Patterson University for a year. Um, and that, um, and there I studied the first semester with Conrad Herwig, then um, at that time he was on tour with Joe Henderson, so he, he wasn't able to be there the second semester, and so then I studied a little bit with Ed Newmeister. Mm-hmm. So then after a year at William Patterson, I decided I was just going to quit school for a while, and I moved into the city and started playing and working for a few years. Um, and then a few years later, I decided to go back and, and finish, and I went and finished at the Juilliard School, finished my bachelor's degree, and then I uh, also, like Ryan, I got an artist diploma from there. And when I was there, I had um, like I said, I got to study with, with uh, Wycliffe Gordon some, also with Dave Berger, um, composition, and then uh, when I was in the Artist diploma Polar program, I actually studied with, I took classical lessons with Joe Alessi, mm-hmm. and then I also studied with one of the uh, classical composition teachers there, a guy named Kendall Briggs. So.
0: Wow, very cool. Yeah, that's great. Now, uh, now that we hear the Alabama thing, Alabama, the state of Alabama is going to try to claim you as one of their great trombone players with the histories of with Irby Green and First <laughs> Johnson. Uh, oh, uh, we're going to take Marshall right. too now. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah.
2: You put a sign up on the highway.
0: Well, um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about music schools because I think a lot of our viewers, uh, especially younger viewers, are are interested in you know the various programs and there's a lot of choices now. And uh, um, you know, as you guys both mentioned, you went to Juilliard and and Manhattan as well. Um, and you, know, you guys have achieved a huge amount of success and a very impressive level of success coming out of school. And, and you know, that's obviously not often the case, uh, especially, in, in, especially in the music business as it is today. Um, but anyway, I was wondering if you could just add whatever thoughts you might have. I know, Ryan, you're, you're active as a full-time educator. Um, but what your kind of impression and your, your opinions about uh, the state of music schools today, especially in the US, um, particularly maybe touching on Juilliard, Manhattan, New England, Eastman, Miami, USC, Berkeley, any that you have, have had any kind of connection and uh, um, affiliation with. Marshall, maybe you want to lead off on that one.
3: Yeah. Um, well, I, I, for me as a student, you know, especially when I was a young student, I think uh, one thing I was really lucky to have when I went to, like, for instance, U- University of Northern Colorado is that I had a, a really great fundamental trombone teacher, um, and somebody who was uh, who was there every week, and he took it. Buddy Baker took it seriously, like in, you know he, you had you had a daily routine. He had a uh, a binder with everything you were doing, and you know you had to really keep track. And it was a very structured uh, way of, of teaching and learning. But um, and I think having that, especially I, previously that I had studied with a couple of his students that that played in the band that my dad conducted in the Air Force band at the Air Force Academy. Um, and so I, I, had kind of started learning a bit of his system then, but, um, I, I think that for, for me, that's one really important thing is who you're going to study with. Um, and I know a lot of schools, they'll throw out these big names and, and it could be that they throw out these big names and you, oh, I'm going to go to the school, I'm going to study with this guy, but then they maybe they're not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's something, at least for me at a young age, that really helped shape my, um, kind of really helped set me on the right path, um, I think in terms of practicing and, um. Also, for me, you know, I, I always try to think of, of trombone playing as trombone playing. And, and a lot of guys say, oh, you're a jazz player, you're a classical player. But I, mm-hmm. I really try to work on classical stuff, kind of, I'd say, classically rooted daily routine stuff every day. Um, and um, I, I think also being able to be part of a, a program where you can also work on those things. You know, when I was at Juilliard, I think one great thing there is you, you took classes in the jazz program, but then you were also required to take ear training with all the classical ear training uh, with all the classical students, you know, and um, mm-hmm. at that time there was a woman named uh, Mary Anthony Cox who had been there, I think for, I, I don't want to offend her, but if she watches this for <laughs> something like 60 years, and she's wow. taught, taught all these, you know, I remember being on a gig with a, a bass player, um, uh, you know, uh, and he was he, the guy was like, the bass player was 68 years old, so said, oh, I went to Juilliard, is Mrs. Cox still there? <laughs> and I was like, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> but she wouldn't even think she taught, you know, Wynton Marsalis and Christian mm-hmm. McBride, you know, he... I remember wow. he came to the that's school great. when I was there as a guest and he said, Is Mrs. Cox still here? You know, with all these no, great so people. But, but anyway, I'm kind of getting away from your question. But, um, um, but you know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I think students have to find what program works best for them. You know, I think going and, and, and finding what teacher works best for you, you know. Um,
0: I think it's great advice about the teacher and having a teacher that's there. Um, and really, you know, taking a hands-on approach, taking ownership almost of their students. Uh, Because that is, I think, the case a lot where the the teacher may not really be there enough, you know. You know, having
3: gone to, like, several different schools, too, you know, I I can say uh, one thing is that, you know, that that teacher thing is really important. And then also the the actual, when I was at Juilliard, one of the amazing things was being around the students that were there. I mean, the level was so high of these, you know, these guys coming in and, you know, and calling standards, calling tunes, and you just like, what's that? You know, or, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's also you know um, really important to be in an environment that's really just really encouraging um, to grow. But um, for me, I you know when I was first starting out in school, that that structured thing with it with the teacher that was really great for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another thing though these days, though I think is you know it's it's hard to pick schools because also I mean cost is certainly a factor. It's so expensive. I mean, um, you know. I, yeah, I guess you have to kind of weigh the, you know, weigh the benefits of, you know, if you, you know, if you're going to take out all these loans and stuff and graduate, you know, seriously in debt, or, you know, maybe you can find a great teacher someplace else and not deal with it. I don't know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's also a very good point. Ryan, I know you have some some really good thoughts about this.
2: Yeah, I mean, Marshall just covered the bases, though. I mean, I I think number one, it's your teacher, and and certainly someone who's there. Although for me, I mean, it depends on the student. For me, studying with Steve Touré, I had a lesson maybe every three weeks, Mm -hmm. sometimes every, maybe just once a month, but they were incredible lessons. It was an all-day hang, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't just a music lesson, it was a life lesson. I mean, we'd go out and we'd mow his lawn, (laughs) you know, his wife would cook me dinner afterwards, and it wasn't, for me, it was an amazing experience. I was new to the East Coast, you know, just being around a, a jazz musician and experience sort of their life, and seeing, you know, in terms of the lifestyle that was possible, just in terms of being around people of different backgrounds, as both of them were from what I was used to growing up in a kind of white bread suburb. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think it really depends. But having a teacher who you respect and who you are open to criticism is really important. Um, And then absolutely the students. I mean, to me, that's what you're paying for. I mean, I think most classroom studies, the majority of students who are, 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 are going to succeed in jazz, more than likely can learn a lot of that stuff on their own. So what you can't learn on your own is playing with others who motivate you and learning your, you know, the specifics on your instrument, uh, details that you wouldn't get elsewhere. So teachers, students, I think that's it. I mean, I know certainly, I'm sure Marshall would agree. I mean, I think one of the reasons that I, uh, I, I still today continue to kind of push myself is being around him, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. surrounding yourself with people who do things that you want to do. You know whether it's in school or, or after school. So, um, and then uh, certainly cost is a huge thing. I don't. I would say without fail. I mean, unless and I I don't, I don't think there's 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 a, a a scenario where one should graduate with an undergrad degree and be in significant debt. I think that's a really bad idea. Um, most people go on to study uh, at a graduate level, and at that point, I think taking on a little debt makes a little more sense because it's at that point that most students. Will be ready to actually make some money and work professionally, but you know if you're already ready to work professionally as an undergrad, I don't really see the point in school. Period. Mm. Go work professionally. Mm-hmm. You know, learn. Mm-hmm. There's no better way to learn jazz than on the gig and mm-hmm. and you know like it's typically been taught. So, but for most students, if you know you're not ready, certainly I wasn't ready as an 18 or 19 year old, and you want to go get your feet wet, you want to continue to to really dedicate yourself to your craft and to your instrument and fine tune your skills and your language and And uh, then, when you are ready to take that next step, then it might make sense to spend a little more bread, or then it might make sense to move to New York. But up until that, you just want an environment where you can practice, man, all day, every day. New York, actually, in some ways, is not the best place for that. Not only are there the distractions in New York City, but um, a lot of them, a lot of these schools have limited hours because Mm -hmm. you know New York is. Surrounded by other people and other residents, limited a,
3: practice rooms too,
2: and limited and limited space. Yeah, yeah Manhattan absolutely. school. We had to get there an hour early to sign up for the practice rooms, and you had a two-hour limit each day, and uh, they closed at ten thirty. Wow. Yeah. Whereas you know, a lot of these state schools with big campuses, they're twenty-four hour day practice rooms. Man, I it would be incredible just to hole up in a practice room all night long every night. You know. It's, sure. But again, that doesn't you know, being in New York obviously has its benefits. First and foremost, getting to hear the music you're studying. You know, created at the highest level on live, so that's a big plus. But yeah, I think that really those are the things to to, to look for and do your homework.
3: That's a great point, though, about the the, the practice rooms or not not practice rooms, but the being you know maybe going to undergrad someplace else and then coming yeah. to New York or something or to a or Boston area or New yeah. York for for grad school. But yeah, yeah, thinking back, you know, my first year of school I was in Greeley, Colorado, and there's not a whole lot to do. Exactly. Um, and it was great. I, I used to, you know, I, I didn't take that many credit hours. And so I would basically, I, I was pretty diligent about just going and I would say, OK. And maybe it wasn't the best practicing, but OK, I, at least six hours today, or seven hours, or eight hours. And I would just sit in the practice room and kind of alternate between piano and trombone, trying to work new things out. But, mm-hmm. but And if I had been in New York, you know, yeah, who knows? I would have been, oh, my moon's is only two blocks. I'm going to go get a falafel. <laughs> <all my>, um, <laughs> Passed a blue note and then, you know, or, you know, I don't know. Like, of course. But yeah. it means, yeah. I, I, you know. Yeah, I think that was, at that age, that was for me, that was where I was at. I mean, that's, I, that's what I needed to be doing. Yeah.
2: Mm.
0: I think that's also a great point, uh, the way you articulated, you know, possibly looking at your undergrad is trying to avoid taking on a lot of debt. And if yeah. you need to take debt, maybe that's done yeah. at the graduate level. It's a great, I think it's a great piece of advice. And here. we have
2: friends, I can think of uh, half a dozen people who did that over the last 10 years and who've had real success with mm. that approach, mm. coming here when they already really had their stuff together. And because school is also, especially jazz school, is a networking experience, that's one of the reasons you, know, you want to play with kids who are good because they have a better chance of working professionally as yeah. you hope to do as well. So, you know, when you're coming in and you already really have your stuff together, now you're ready to network. You know, you don't necessarily want to start networking when you're not playing at a level that, that you want to be playing at. So, Yeah,
0: also, also a good point. Yeah. Um, you know what, let's, let's kind of move forward now a little yeah. bit into your guys' professional lives and, and some of the uh, great accomplishments that you guys have done. Um, among the many similarities between you is that you both have three solo CDs out. I'm a big fan of, uh, of uh, both of your guys' solo works, just tremendous. And we'll talk a little bit more specifically about your latest releases in a, in a minute here. But can you share some of your thoughts and experiences about leading your own group, writing for your group? Getting your music recorded, getting it released, getting it on the radio. We were talking about the airplay yeah. getting with BGO. Um, just kind of maybe in a general way, what that process was, was like as you started off with, with your first uh, recordings. Yeah, well, maybe you should go first since
2: you released the very first record. Oh, between yeah. Between the two of us. Yeah. We're on the same record label, too, by the way. Mm, yeah. okay. Which happens to be owned by the two of us, but <laughs> coincidentally. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's a select group. Yeah, alternate yeah. side <laughs> records. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Um, yeah. So the first record I did was, man, I guess, 2003. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, basically, I, I, I called. At that point, I didn't have a working band. Um, I had guys that I had played, different guys that I had played with. Um, but uh, I kind of decided who, who I wanted to play with. And, and I had a bunch of compositions that I wanted to record of my own. And, um, and I basically made the call and got the money together to fund it myself. Uh, and we recorded, um, and then and then I, I shopped it around. I tried shopping around to a few labels, but actually nobody. You know, I think unless you really have an inside track, or you know, these days, I mean, that was, I mean, that was that was te- you know, ten years ago. Nowadays, though, if you're if you have a, a project and you mail it to a to a, a record label, I'm sure they're getting a stack. I'm, I've asked guys that I've met, and they say, "Oh man, we get this many CDs every day." You know, so yeah. unless you really have an inside track, it's even back then, maybe it was this many CDs they were getting every day. Right. But unless you have a really inside track, I think it was hard to get it on the label. And and in the end, that actually worked out to be the great, the best way because um, I ended up releasing it myself, kind of starting a record label. And um, and yeah, that's what I did. You know, and I released it, and the first one I did my own PR and everything. You know. I didn't have any money, so I um, um, I still don't have any money, but I, I yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I released it myself, and I and I somebody gave me a list of uh, PR contacts that they got from somebody. It was floating around the jazz community yeah, right. in New York, so I took that and I sat on my sat on the floor in my living room one day and made a little. I learned how to use Photoshop in a very poor way and <laughs> kind of made a little uh, one sheet and stuff and sent them my CDs and I actually got some really good reviews, you know. Um, and then over time, I just started handing them out to a lot of people and. Um, I think in the jazz community, the, the these days, like me, mean, a CD is also kind of a bit of a business card. You know, it's kind of like this yeah. is my work. You're not. I mean, yeah. I sell CDs when I play live the most. You know, and I sell some through iTunes and through uh, um, and through the internet, but not like mass quantities. You know, um, I remember years ago I had met a uh, and R rep from Verve Records, um, and uh, you know. At that time, I was, you know, I think like these, you know, you think all these jazz people are stars, you know, so um, and I, th- I had that impression in my mind, oh, this guy, you know, he must sell, you know, f- thousands and thousands and thousands of records. And it was one of my favorite records. And the guy told me, yeah, records sold 4,000 copies worldwide, you know, and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. that's not that many records, you know. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so, you know, the first record I did uh, was called Edendary. Um, and then uh, a few few years later, I, I did another one, and in the meantime, playing playing some some gigs with those uh, with those bands um, in different formats too. Sometimes playing some of that music maybe with a trio instead, or different arrangements of the same size. You know, with my last record, you know, I, I um, did a tour last year in Colombia in South America, and and I just took a trio, so we played. That's one of my favorite formats to play in as well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so yeah, so yeah, that's kind of how it started, and and then. Um, yeah, I've just I guess I've done three now. Um, in the last two, you know, I hired a, a professional publicist to to help publicize and stuff. And and yeah, I mean, I basically sold them through the internet and then live on live gigs. They're available in some stores, like mostly brass stores or something where mm-hmm. I had a personal relationship with the people. You know? mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, cool. How about yourself, Ryan? Yeah,
3: yeah, I mean, you know, we could do a whole interview
2: <laughs> on making in, a record, as, yeah. as you well know. Yeah. I mean, just the studio, picking a studio and. Sure. I mean we one of the, we use the same studio and one of the reasons uh, is because they have this one particular mic and it's the only mic that I know of like it in New York City called the Veracoustic and it predates mm. the RCA 44 mm. and it just sounds unbelievable on trombone and mm-hmm. the, the studio engineer knew knew that you know he's mm-hmm. like this is the best mic for trombone and it, it really is
0: that's at uh, Systems Two. Yeah, right. yeah Systems Two. Yeah. You know, I've yeah. never seen that mic anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. I'm
2: sure they do exist, but in any case, yeah. I mean, there's so much to, that goes into it, and you, you know, I think it's really smart if you're doing your first record. I, I wish I would have done this, uh, is to to ha- hire a friend or um, just you know pick the brain of someone who does have the experience to avoid some of the p- common pitfalls because there are many. As we, you know, we both made a lot yeah. of the same mistakes the first time around, and. What are you talking about? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, never mind. They were perfect records. Um, but, you know, it's a it's a complicated process. There's a lot to learn. And, and I feel like, yeah, I mean, I feel like now after three CDs, I really kind of have a formula down. But, um, I mean, maybe maybe the best thing to do here is talk about some of those pitfalls. I mean, certainly a studio choice is a big one. And, y- you know, you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. Even in today's, you know, uh, high-tech uh, home studio environment, you you can't replace, you, you can't you know, you're not going to get a mic that sounds like a, like a Veracoustic uh, by spending $50 an hour. You know, it just right. won't happen. And even if you have a good mic, you need really great preamps. And, you know, those are tens of thousands of dollars sometimes. And, you know, so you, you know all this stuff. I'm preaching at the choir. Um, but I think that certainly, you know, not skimping on studio time is important. Mixing, you don't necessarily need to spend big, big bucks. Because even in studios, big studios now, they're mixing in Pro Tools. And many people have Pro Tools with good plugins. And, um Mastering is a really important step you don't want to skimp on. Marshall's lucky enough. He had it in, in, in the family set up for mastering, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. My brother, he, he actually, my first record I, I did it at Systems 2. Um, and then I put it on a hard drive, and I took it out. My brother had a, he had a studio in his house at the time. We mixed it there. Oh, awesome! That's yeah. great. And then, uh, and then he mastered it. And then the latest one, I uh, actually my latest record, I didn't do systems two. Um, oh, I that's right. MSR Studios, right, oh, okay. which, which is where we, I did my first record. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At the time, it was called Right Track. Right Track. and then MVP, Legacy and after Legacy. that, and then now you it's called. You've been there. On Forty Eighth Street. On Forty Eighth Street, yeah, sure, probably. sure, yeah. 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 And actually, that was it was actually a really cool thing to do a, a, a record in a different place because just I actually I love Systems Two. It's a great studio. Yeah. Um, but also MSR, it's, it's it's kind of a different vibe. It has like mm-hmm. a very like a brick wall and kind of old, really old uh, wood floors. Almost look like a barn or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, and, it's, and it's kind of a, just a different atmosphere from. And they have great mics. Yeah, they also have great mics. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly yeah. not cheap. Yeah. I
2: mean, yeah, you can't yeah, yeah, you no. can't <laughs> skip on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, mastering is really important for sure. Yeah. Um. And then you know yeah, the next step is getting it out there and that's the really frustrating part is nowadays since everything is almost uh, uh, exclusively sold online and distributed online truly anyone can make can, can make a CD of varying qualities and get it out there. And, you know, from a critic's perspective and an audience's perspective, there's a lot of material to sort through, you know, and I, I won't mince words. There's a lot of kind of mediocre stuff to sort through. And so that's the frustrating thing. And I think that's when a publicist comes in handy, because typically publicists aren't going to take on a lot of that more mediocre work. And that's mm-hmm. not always true, but... Mm-hmm. But they will give you a certain sense of uh, importance that, unless you're already established, you don't have otherwise. And um, uh, yeah, publicists will really help get you some get you some some reviews. Which you get some reviews that can lead to gigs, and obviously you get some more gigs that leads to more reviews. That starts leading to some more notoriety in the scene. So. I think it's a really important step making a record. It is like making a business card, or I think more—I think of it more like a novel for an author. I mean, something you have to do. I mean, we're creative artists, and you want to capture that work every so often. Even if—even if you're not a composer, just capture your your imp, your improvised spirit. You know, you want to document that. So, I think it's a is a really important thing to do. It's something that that um, kind of documents your progress, and something that you're able to leave. Uh, kind of a trail behind you as you develop and as you change stylistically, and uh, I think it's a really important step.
3: Yeah, it's a great learning tool too, though. And that's one thing. Yeah, absolutely. One amazing thing is, like, I remember, the, especially the first record. I remember, okay, I got it. I was so excited, man. Cool. I put it in. I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sound awful, yeah. you know? And you just because you're you're sitting there just listening. You're your own worst critic, and so you're mm-hmm. listening, listening, and, and now like some of those it's the same thing with second records. Same thing. Oh. It's awful. Yeah, I yeah. can't. I, I can't. What am I gonna do? This I just just wasted all this money you know, and I'm gonna throw it away. But, but actually, you learn so much by 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 literally list, listening to yourself so critically and over and over and over again as you're mixing mm. and stuff. But, um, and but what I find though is like those records, if you if you if that stuff, if you put it away for a while and you come back later, it's like, oh, it's not so bad, right. you know. Mm-hmm. But it's a great it's a great one of the best ways to to, to learn. I mean, even practicing, you know, That's especially right. with iPhones or whatever you have, you, totally. you just press boom listen back oh my time's not good or totally or sharp flat i think you know. it's
0: so important for students you know for all of us as professors as well you know we've got Everyone. to listen to ourselves and you know it's why i suppose back in the day studio musicians were so uh up on their game because they were constantly evaluating how they were playing uh, on a regular right. basis but uh but i can tell you for sure none of your records sound bad <laughs> oh, I've, 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 both of you guys i mean I've been, i remember and i think ryan's a great point too it's like you know, you, you, you make that record, that's what was happening on that day at yeah. that time in your life. And yeah. I love listening to your guys' stuff and saying, you know, yeah, it sounds different and maybe, maybe better now. I don't know, but it's, they all sound great. And it's kind of nice just to see how you guys have evolved as, a, as musicians. It's great. Um, you know, one of the things I find interesting with especially younger players at the college level right now is uh, they're not necessarily so inclined to be involved in big band playing. Um, and I understand that, you know, certainly from a creative standpoint, small group playing is, is superior in, in, in that regard. But um, I always looked at playing in a big band, which a lot of my career was involved in that, and, and uh, I, f- I feel like it's kind of a foundation for good ensemble playing. And, and that ensemble playing is not just playing in a big band. It could be, you know, more work-like stuff, like playing a show or playing mm-hmm. studio music or whatever, whatever uh, it may be. Um, you guys are both great soloists but you're also great section players I love when I you know we've gotten to play together it's just like feels wow well, <laughs> but it just feels good you know you sit down and, and you guys just are such good musicians you're listening all the time can you just touch a little bit on how you approach uh, you know ensemble playing and maybe how that differs from how you approach uh, your, your solo playing yeah well I
3: mean um I would say, like if I'm playing an ensemble, the, the biggest thing I'm always thinking about, I'm listening, and I'm trying to, you know, I'm listening on the guy next to me. You know, how am I going to play? It depends if I'm playing lead or if I'm playing second, but also trying to hear. Wow, it's kind of a tough question. There's so many things you're thinking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, you know, if I, you know, you know, if you're playing lines, then you have a, a, a line with maybe a saxophone player or with a trumpet player or something like that. Oh, I have a unison line with this. Okay. You know, and really getting, I, I try to really find, like, sometimes even listen, oh, this guy, oh, we've played it four times already, he always plays the C sharp, so I'm going to play my C too, so when they ask in the booth, that they, they won't ask in the booth, because maybe they won't, you know, they'll just sound in tune together, but, mm-hmm. um, so I mean, like, trying to be hyper aware of my, hyper aware of my surroundings when I'm playing, um, um, whether, you know, hopefully the ideal situation is, like, hyper aware and cool, that's where I hear it too, and the guys around me are playing in the same place and have the same mindset or, they're hearing the note rhythmically in the same place and um, pitch-wise in the same place, yep. um, but that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, a onward. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a evolving um, kind of craft to be trying to learn how to play. Maybe if it's not the most ideal situation, or um, to to listen and and, be and and find out. Okay, how do I if this guy's going to play this note sharp or if this guy's going to play that note low? You know how how am I going to fit my note in the middle? You know, and it's a challenge. I don't know. It's something I'm always trying to do, and um, to get better at. But also, also, but that's, that's sometimes. But in other times, it's just uh, you sit in a section and boom, that's where it is, and it feels great, and um, you don't have to think so much. Or um, yeah, I don't know if that does that make sense at all. I don't it know. Makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But it's a tough. Yeah, it's kind of a it's a tough question because. Uh, um, I definitely like going back to what I was saying earlier in the interview. Um, I definitely kind of think of trombone playing first and foremost, and like kind of being a real. I, I try to be a try to work on a, being a good classically rooted or legit rooted player, you know. And so hopefully, a lot of those other things by working on that stuff every day. You know, I, I tend to practice probably at least I try to do a daily routine every day. It's basically just classical stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I spend a lot of time with a tuner. Um, um, Kind of more. as just kind of a reference guide. It's every now and then I'll stop play. So I'll play an F above middle C and say, "Okay, oh, well, you know, is it? Am I still playing it high, or am I playing it? You know, or you know, especially like that kind of problem notes in the trombone. You know, G above middle C or yeah. D in fourth position
2: mm-hmm. above
3: middle C. Those kind of things are.
2: And playing well, in large ensembles force you to address those issues. That's one of the great things. Yeah. You know, you have to play with a good sound and good intonation and clean and accurate articulations and most importantly, good time and uh different concepts of swing and knowing how to adapt i mean that's what you know like you said listening but it's all those details that you can get aw- You can get away with really kind of skating or skirting those issues in a small ensemble mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. no one's going to say anything if you're playing out of tune if it's just you in a rhythm section mm. yeah yeah, good point so mm.
0: you had a really good uh, you were kind enough to have me in as a guest artist here at hunter a few years back and, and i remember just the way you rehearse the band it's the same way you play i mean you just had a way of being super concise and right to the thing that's needed and i think you're right when you talk about how you know you can get away with i mean coltrane didn't play perfectly in tune he's yeah. arguably one of the greatest improvisers Absolutely. ever and and yeah, you know, probably antenna. not probably not the greatest thing if he was playing second tenor in a big right. band not that the thought of that doesn't even make sense, but uh, <laughs> but uh, in a certain kind of way,
2: you're you know that's, yeah. that's a very uh, well. And good all point. these kids who want to play small group, I mean, what do they think? They're all culturing, yeah. You know, because yeah. none of us are. And you know, it's like aside from all the technical skills that you develop in a large ensemble, really, what it comes down to, it's where you make connections and where you network. I mean, if you want to play small group, you better start playing in big bands because you're certainly not going to get small group gigs first, especially in the trombone. I mean, I wish I played a rhythm section instrument, because there you can start playing small group exclusively, I mean, if, you really, if you're really dealing. Yeah. But you're not going to get a small group call as a trombonist, you know, unless you're subbing for one of the few bands, that, ha- unless you're subbing for SF Jazz and subbing for Robin Eubanks, or if you're subbing for, I mean, uh, Dave Holland's band hardly works anymore, which Robin also does that. So maybe you should study with Robin, I guess. You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, what other small groups have trombone nowadays? Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I mean, there's hardly any uh, dizzy. You know, Mike Mike D sometimes does small group stuff with the Dizzy Alumni All Star Band. Um, I mean, but you know, think about it. Okay, some of the greatest young players today, Marshall, Elliot. What do these guys do? You guys are playing with big bands. <laughs> I mean, that's where the work is. That's where you make connections. And there's there's a reason for that. I mean, if 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 Elliot could be making the money he's making now playing small group, he would be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's 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 you have to. That's it's not just paying dues. It's just that's where you meet people. That's where you 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 sort of learn the business of music and, and develop those skills as well. And and then obviously all the musical things we we discussed, you are able to deal with those as well, or forces you to deal with those. For
3: me, though, actually, I kind of had a funny funny way into jazz. I think. Um, because I was kind of first introduced to, to jazz through big bands. Like, there was a big band at the, where my dad was conducting. It was called the Falcon Airs. It was at the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, that was my favorite part of the concert, you know, when they, when they would play or I would go to their concerts, and they had a guest artist each year. But um, And the guys from the, that big band were actually my first teachers as well, you know. So um, one guy was named Mark Israel, was the first jazz teacher. Uh, he was a trumpet, trumpet player there. And he, man, he got me started with you know, a bunch of theory mm. stuff and kind of patterns and stuff and showing me things and... Then um, then say hey, well, check out this maybe like this musician and then there was another tr- a trombone player there a great player named mark burditt and he really got me uh, he said oh check out these trombone players and stuff you know but um but you know when i was i really like going and i loved the, you know had great fantastic lead trumpet player and i just loved that that big band sound so um that was kind of that basically kind of led me i remember first i bought by like all doc severinson's records and <laughs> You know, I had, like, you know, the Tonight Show band that's with Tommy awesome. Newsom, and, and sure. you know, and, you know, I was like, you know, all the other kids were listening to Metallica, and I'm like, you know. <laughs> I'm the same way. I mean, my dad's a big You know, big I had my director. headphones on in bed, like, yeah, you know, like. I,
0: I, get, yeah. even for, uh, when I was a kid, I was total big band head. But Watrous and uh, Maynard, those were my two mm-hmm. first, Chameleon and Manhattan, Wildlife <laughs> Refuge, but even worse than that, I was a big Buddy Rich fan, and yeah. not that that's bad. No, I, no, I ended no. up working for him for two years. It was a great experience, but. I remember listening to those records, and he had that great arrangement of Norwegian Wood. Yeah. I was so sheltered, I thought Norwegian Wood was a Buddy Rich tune. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to like, I get to college, and I'm like, yeah, I did that Buddy Rich tune Norwegian Wood. And somebody's like, what are you, high? Are you nuts? <laughs> that's a Beatles tune. You know? no, so I was like, amazing. really? it like, then a light bulb that's went amazing. off, I think... Wait a minute. These aren't just Woody, Herman, Buddy, Rich, yeah. Maynard things, you know. But anyway, yeah. we're all coming from that kind of yeah. Big the first band. trombone solo I ever yeah. learned
2: was a Clarence Banks solo on a Basie record oh, okay. from like yeah. the mid '80s. You yeah. know, like uh, when Frank Foster was leading it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think big band. I mean, you know, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a student of history, man. As I think everyone should be. And I mean, that's where everybody learned to play is in big bands. There's really no exceptions. Yeah. I mean, you know, even. Yeah, they're, they're Coltrane, really. Culture, you my culture yeah, in my culture. Yeah, everybody got big band thing. I mean, and certainly there's a practical reason for that, but I think that there are some musical reasons that you can, that you can draw from those from those uh, uh, examples. I think you're, the practical side of it is something I hadn't even thought about, but you're absolutely right.
0: That's where networking and everything else can. Uh, and and while we're on the subject of big bands, you guys are both a member of uh, the Maria Schneider Jazz Orchestra, which is arguably the most successful big band going these days. Uh, it's incredible what she's accomplished, and, and great writing, and, and uh, you know, all all the things, uh, all the accolades due to her. Um, can you talk about playing in the band and, and what kind of an impact it's had for you professionally?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, well, I think it's also interesting how how that opportunity came to be. I mean, again, it's networking. You know, I, I got the call because of a big band that I play in, led by David Berger, as we were the Marshall session, yeah. plays as well. We were in the same session and. Maria's bass trombonist was subbing because David Berger doesn't normally have a bass trombonist. So we were recording music they'd written for Four Bones, and George loved the section. I was playing lead at the time, you were playing second, uh, or third, and Pat Halloran was playing second. He loved the section, and when Keith was locked, when Keith O'Quinn, her lead player, was locked into a Broadway show and had to miss like a month tour, George recommended me to play lead. I mean, she'd never heard me, she never heard of me, and I went in with no rehearsals. I mean, I've never practiced that hard in my entire life, <laughs> you know. Truly, never practiced that hard. Um, so went in totally prepared, and 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 you know, the, the rest is history, I guess. But, but yeah, I mean, again, it comes down to networking in a big band is how that is how it all started. But, mm-hmm. I mean, aside from being a huge fan of her music, I, I love I love the drama in her music. I love the um, I love the uh, kind of emotional connection that her music has on a lot of listeners. Um, I love the way that she fuses composition with improvisation, and just the way that her music is in some ways incredibly detail-oriented, but also her solo sections, as Marshall can attest, are some of the most wide-open, mm. completely spontaneous musical moments I've ever had. You know, you never—some yeah. of these solos, you never know what's going to happen. One night, you're. You're sort of tipping and swinging, and the next night the rhythm section just stops playing entirely, and it's yeah, a solo yeah. trombone dude. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you never know. Very lazy
3: rhythm section. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. what do they the get? Temperamental paid? guys. Yeah, yeah.
2: So I, 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 for me, it's one of the highlights of my career. Wow, definitely. Very cool.
3: Yeah, um, I basically got into the band the same way yeah. as Ryan, although then he was there too to back me up, you know. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I had, I, I think I had done one concert with her. Um, and then uh, she needed somebody to do a recording Sky Blue, the last record that came out and so um, yeah I mean I have been a huge fan since I, was, I mean I had Evanescence when I was a kid I think uh, or maybe first year of college I, I got it and um, uh, yeah a huge fan of her writing and playing and I mean um,
0: I should mention too that you guys have a great section, and you mentioned Georgia. Uh, yeah. The bass bonus George Flynn who's one of the best guys in New York, and he's the been best. in her band from the beginning, I guess. A guy, and then, has. and of course, the great lead player Keith O'Quinn, who's been on yeah. a, everything yeah. and a, a, anything the, you can uh, imagine over the years. Greats. But, uh, but yeah, it's yeah. quite a great section with yeah. the two of you and, and Keith and George. Really. But I, as Ryan was
3: saying about like the about her the um, soloing, uh, you know, like these wide open vamps, that sh- which is really kind of not normal from the big band tradition, you know, that's usually, you know, oftentimes we have like playing in the big band, there's the big band solo, okay, you get one chorus and it's, it's <laughs> formatted and, and she does build in backgrounds and stuff to the composition. Sometimes, sometimes I actually feel like I'm playing excerpts, also because George Flynn's sitting to the left of me, so it's <laughs> like, yeah, right. you know, you have to keep up, you know, like, so if we have a gig coming up, you know, I start working out, I go to the gym and stuff and, <laughs> no, but she, like, literally, I mean, it's, it's a pretty physically taxing, um, I mean, all the books are, I think, yeah, you know, because yeah, she... Uh, she, you know, sometimes I think the band taking a, almost an orchestric kind of uh, vibe is different than the bat, that you play in, you know, real swinging kind of big band stuff. So yeah, it's a different, different. That third different book is almost like a
2: bassbone book and it's written for tenor bone. I mean, yeah. minus the and, trigger notes, but it's like huge, you know. loud, low, open.
3: But sometimes it feels like I, I feel like I'm playing like a six minute, you know, excerpt. You know, but then, and then you have to stand up and go play a four or five minutes. So, yeah. so it's a, it's a, it's very, you know, and, and so now I, I used to kind of let it, tr- maybe got in my head sometimes like, oh wow, okay, man, I've been playing, them really like relaxed now because I've been playing low notes for five minutes, but, um, now I kind of just go for it and, you know, it's because you can't, you can't really do anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff.
3: Um, you know, we touched on
0: it before and you guys are both great writers. I love your writing and, uh, maybe you could, um, just talk about how that's had an impact on your career. Um, I know, obviously, on your your projects. That's that's uh, it's as much your writing as it is your playing. But mm-hmm. maybe just talk about how you approach being a composer.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, I um, and I, I write at the piano. I generally. I mean, there's maybe a couple of tunes that maybe some ideas came about on the trombone, but um, in general, I write at the piano and I sit down and I. Um, Sometimes maybe I'll have a motif or an idea that I'm that I'm that I'm starting from that I you will know, try to sit down and see if I can work something out and see if it goes somewhere, you know. Um, and that's kind of how most of the pieces I've I've written um, start. Um, I think, you know, talking about like my if I go with my compositions on my three different records, the first one is definitely more the kind of tunes, you know. It's kind of like okay, we play the tune, play the head, then we take solos, and then we play the head out again. Um, and then my second record has a couple tunes like that, but then there's also more pieces that are kind of uh, diff- different sections to them. Um, and I think part of that is definitely from, like the influence from playing with Maria. I think her music's mm-hmm. like that. Um, also, when I was at Juilliard, I studied with this, one of the classical composition teachers, a guy named Kendall Briggs, and I, used, I, used, I would bring jazz pieces I was working on, though, to him, and, and it was really cool to get a, a, a classical composer's perspective on on what you're writing, because because at that time then I was starting to write things, maybe in two or three movements and different things, and 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 one thing that he said to me a lot that I that always kind of sticks in my head when I'm writing, he goes, I I already heard this, you know. Mm. And if you play a vamp, I mean, if, let's say if you play a vamp to him without a solo and you repeat the vamp, he's like, well, why, why? I'm bored. I already heard this, yeah. you know. Um, so that has definitely been an influence um, on on my writing and. Um, and you know, like my latest record has, a, you know, a lot more of that. I mean, like multiple movements, two or three movements of right, yeah. pieces, and trying to take a motif and then bring it back later on,
1: mm-hmm.
3: on another movement or something like that. Um, in terms of having an effect on career-wise, um, um, I'd, I'd say, you know, basically, um, the, the the biggest effects have. Sometimes I get contact; people want to play my music, um, or or being able to. I think it's 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 one thing to go out and, b- and to be able to play, um, perform. Perform jazz standards or stuff like our jazz traditional jazz repertoire, but it's also a really great feeling to be, have the chance to go play your music and present. It's one thing to present your playing in somebody else's composition, but you go out and present your music, and it's kind of I think even presenting a even more personal side of yourself you mm-hmm. know, in in front Definitely. of the audience. And I would say that's the biggest impact this had career-wise. And and I think for me, I guess, you know, my ultimate dream is actually to be able to, to do that more, as much as possible, you know, because mm-hmm. um, for me, that's a really, really unique feeling when you, when you, when you get to play your music with musicians that you want to play with, and they like playing it, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, you don't feel like you're working anymore, you know, that's, I think that's the biggest effect it's had mm-hmm. career-wise. Huh? Cool, very cool. Yeah,
2: yeah, I agree with all of that. I think, um, I think composing, I mean, historically, has always been an important part of uh, b- being a jazz musician, first and foremost. Because, as, f- as for me personally, and I think it's sort of a, uh, a standardized sentiment, uh, the best improvisations sound composed. They have the same logic, they have the same structure and development, and the same the same um, shape and drama. And uh, I mean, Louis Armstrong was a, was a great composer. You know, um, so going all the way back. Um, and so I, to me, it's the same mindset. I mean, to me, when you're improvising, I'm trying to compose, but I'm, you're obviously doing it in a very spontaneous way. And when I'm composing, I try, although it's a very difficult thing to do, to get into that improvise, that improvising head, mm-hmm. that head where you're not being overly critical, you're not overthinking things, you're just letting it flow. So with that, all, with that all being said, I also compose at the piano, and I think most great composers do, not just in jazz, but... In, in all styles of music, uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, it's just such a logical and, and um, well-laid-out tool to, to deal with harmony and melody. Um, so I think the better the piano player you are, the better your compositions are going to be. I mean, I think that's one of the problems is uh, we all have limitations on on the instrument. Marshall and I both were. We studied classical piano at, at some you point. You studied more than me, man. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my technique's a little bit. Better, but. but still, you. I mean, you play more <laughs> piano than most. I mean, my mom's a piano teacher. I. I that's. I can. I worked professionally at a at a church on the piano for eight years. I mean, mm. but I think still. I mean, I still find it to be limiting at times. You know. So the better pianist you are, the better your compositions are going to sound. And it doesn't just have to do with technique and how fast you can play. It has to do with with um, kind of your, your, the breadth of knowledge in terms of harmony, um, uh, functional harmony like counterpoint, and, but also just um, uh, uh, just different sounds and different colors. And so for me, that's uh, it's two things. It's like developing that internally in terms of listening to lots of different music and building that language base and then being able to realize it on the piano. So I mean, for me, aside from uh, Manny Al- and Manny Michael Benny, and David Berger, who are all amazing, Um, composers, and mainly very much jazz-centric composers and arrangers. Um, For me, my other huge influence is um, Duke Ellington, and um, I've been fortunate enough to be the editor of Jazz at Lincoln Center's um, essentially Ellington transcriptions for eight years now. So David Berger does all the heavy lifting, which I don't know how he does it. I mean, you know, every every single note, every single drum, cymbal hit, he's transcribing. It's really incredible. Yeah. But then he sends them to me, and I edit them, and I look for mistakes that were overlooked or f- things that he just didn't have time to deal with. And in that process, man, I mean, I have just learned so much about writing, not just jazz composition, but just writing in general, and orchestration, and how to develop uh, melodies, how to structure arrangements, and uh, I mean... I, you know we just did another batch and it's like there's always a couple of moments where it's like wow I've never ever heard that before mm-hmm. you know this was written in like 42 never heard that before ever amazing. It's just so yeah. much of the more there than people realize yeah you
0: know that's very cool uh, I just like to take a quick second and mention both of you you know we've talked a lot about it but just for, for our viewers um, these two latest CDs are really amazing I would encourage you to pick them up on iTunes or, or at their websites Marshalljokes.com Ryan um, but Sound Stories is your uh, latest CD, fantastic. Yeah. I listened to both of them this week just oh, to cool. kind of get in oh. the right headspace. Burning. And, and uh, Music is Emotion uh, with this catharsis uh, yeah. ensemble, which is unbelievable with Thank Mike you. Rodriguez, and uh, it's great stuff. So check out those two CDs. They're really worth their weight in gold, and sure. uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be listening to them a lot uh, going <laughs> forward, so great stuff. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, our lives as, as musicians, as freelance people, you know. I think we're all in the same boat, you know, sometimes we have those weeks where like it's just everything's clicking, you go from gig to gig, you're making tons of dough, you're feeling great, and then the next week I'm calling myself to make sure my phone still works, you know? <laughs> it's, like, it's unbelievable how it can go from one thing to another. Um, that said, you guys both have, right now, have steady, uh, nice steady jobs that can kind of work as a financial and, you know, probably musical anchor. Yeah. Um, Marshall, of course, with the WDR big band in, in Cologne, Germany. And uh, and Ryan here at Hunter College running the yeah. jazz program, which I understand you're getting a, an award tonight, which is a yeah. very very cool thing yeah. um, for your great work and your recordings and, and so forth. Um, but maybe you could just talk about how that kind of how you approach that and how that maybe helps you. I have those obvious reasons why it helps, but but how you look at it in terms of dealing with the freelance stuff that you do on mm. the on the outside of your steady gig.
2: Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, for, for me, you know, and and, and I. I just realized this recently. Um, Frank Kimbrough, uh, great pianist in Maria's band and educator at Juilliard now, he um, recommends a, a book to all of his students in his business and music class called "Steal Like an Artist." Uh, highly recommended. Just a little paperback, easy read, like lots of pictures. This is like a, more like a little coffee table book, mm-hmm. but um, really interesting book. Basically, how to, in today's world how to make it as an art, as a creative artist, and doing things that don't inherently bring you money with with success. Or the other way around, you know, with success doesn't necessarily bring you money. Um, my wife actually is the one who picked it up, and um, one of the things that stuck with me that I realize I've always done, unbeknownst to me, is having a way to pay your bills that still provides you the time to do your craft. Because I mean, if you want to live in New York, you got you've got some serious bills to pay, and uh, nowadays it's more harder than ever to do that just playing your instrument, or even just even if it's functioning in music at all, it's difficult. So. Finding a way to, to pay your bills, but that allows you the time and the energy so that you're not exhausted at the end of the day or when you're not working to still create. I think that's a really, really important balance to find. And you got to find that 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 of course, sort of money-producing uh, step. You've you got to address that first. Because if you don't address that, six months go by and you're out of money. And you know, <laughs> you're going back home. You know, yeah, right. You're heading back to mom and dad's house. Yeah. So, <laughs> So I think that's really important. So for me, when I first moved to town, uh, I got a job at a church playing piano and singing, like mu- leading the music at this old Catholic church where like no one went. The only service had had any people at all was a Spanish service. So I picked up a little Spanish, although you wouldn't know it, and uh, you know learned a bunch of sp- learned a bunch of Spanish hymns, and and it was a great lesson, and it was you know, terrible money, but it paid the bills, you know. And yeah. And then uh, that led to a, a youth jazz orchestra gig that I used to do, a New York Youth Symphonies Jazz Orchestra. And, and then that led to this job. And, 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 um, and then, of course, you pick up other things on the way. I mean, the longer you're in town, and if you're functioning at a high level, you'll pick up things that are more directly related to what you want to do as a trombonist or as an instrumentalist, um, like subbing on Broadway and playing with Maria and other things that do pay some money. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, those opportunities are few and far between. And there's a lot of amazing musicians vying for those jobs, so I think you got it's really wise to have a backup plan. And it's not really like you know, it's you could think of it as a day gig, but it's really just a way to supplement your craft mm-hmm. nowadays. You mm-hmm. know, so
0: great way to look at it, yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, well, I, when I first moved to New York, I um, one thing I, I started doing, and Conrad had kind of Conrad Herwick had told me, oh, you know this. I used to play a lot of salsa gigs, and he still plays Eddie Palmieri, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I, uh, I, you know, I wanted to get learn more about that music and get involved with that, because the trombone's very prominent in the music. So I went to, um, um, let's see, I went to, to a place called Boy's Harbor, which is a, it's like a, kind of a, it's like a conservatory for, for, for younger students in, in Spanish Harlem. And they have a big band on Monday nights, a Latin big band that plays. Um, they have all the books of like uh, Tito Puente, Machito, and Tito Rodriguez. And, um, and they go and, and, and they, they just rehearse two hours every Monday night. And, uh, and then also a lot of different Latin bands rehearse there. So I went one night and then one of the singers says, hey, man, give me your number. Um, and I have a rehearsal tomorrow. Can you make it? I said, yeah. And, you know, and so all of a sudden, next thing I knew, I was playing five nights a week of salsa. You know, and, and I loved it. You know, yeah. it's, it's been a huge influence on my playing. But yeah. um, kind of similar to what Ryan was saying relative to his, his uh, church gig, is like that kind of led... I, I, most of the things I do now... Including my current job at WDR, I could kind of, kind of, actually, really trace back somehow to, hmm. to the Latin, Latin, Latin community in New York gigs, wow. you know, and eventually though, maybe I met somebody who was from, more from a jazz thing. Oh, hey man, can you do this big band thing? And then mm-hmm. guys hear you. Um, um, but anyway, my, my current gig though, gig, my job, gig, what do we call it? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, right? occupation. Uh, no, um, my like steady job right now. Yeah, I play with the WDR Big Band, um, and I've been there about three and a half years. Um, hmm. And the way that came about is that I um, I got an email. I think for, for John Fedshock forwarded me an email that he had gotten from the bass player in the band, a guy named John Goldsby. And uh, he said, hey, John said, hey, maybe this is something that might interest you. And I knew those bands. I knew of the WDR, particularly from a record um, a record um, called East Coast Blowout that Jim McNeely wrote for them with John Schofield and Mark Johnson and mm-hmm. Adam Nussbaum. My brother had it when we were younger, and then I had a copy as well. And it's a, it's a great record. So I knew of the band cause of that and of the... Of the radio bands in Germany, um, and so I, you know, I, I thought, oh well, at least you know, send an application and and show some interest. And then what happens? The way the way we hire people, the way I was hired, and that we hire people when we look for somebody to fill a chair, is that it's a pretty a co- pretty cool process. It's different from a symphony orchestra in that you know basically people can submit an application, and the band says, okay, yeah, we want to check this guy out, and so they hire you to come. I was hired to come play the first production. I went in November 2000. 2009, I got to go play a two-week production with the band, two concerts in the Philharmonic, and that was with Patty Austin, arranged by Michael Abeni. Benny. Um, and then, um, and then they had me back maybe, maybe ten months later, you know, to do another thing with Mike Stern and Dave Weckl, um, and uh, Tom Kennedy. Um, and, and anyway, so and and then later on they offered me the position, and and I you know, I was wanted to live in Europe. It's a great great band, and so I I, I took it, but and so so that uh, sorry i that b- basically managed though to keep on playing a lot of the small group gigs i do you know mm-hmm. um, an example like this week i'm here in new york we're off there and i'm playing with uh uh playing, ryan and i are both playing this week with the Gil evans project uh, um and you know last weekend i was playing in naples italy with a, a harpist i put with named edmar castaneda and uh, we were off wdr so it worked perfectly you know um, other times you know they've actually been really good the, there about letting me um sub out and do my other things but um so it's been really great from that perspective on the other hand though i mean it's still um you know it's it's still like i was saying earlier my the really my dream though uh, eventually is to, to play more and more of your own music and be playing as much of that as possible but, i mean it's also great you still learn from being around all those other things but uh um so yeah I'm not sure if it makes any sense right now. Yeah, total yeah, total yeah, sense. Totally.
0: Yeah, and it's great. Obviously, a gig like that is great because you're playing so much of the time. It it feeds right into yeah what your your craft is. So it's kind it's of. A, it's
3: also it's a very different kind of playing though because basically you know we, this this past week we were playing with uh, John Clayton and Gerald Clayton. His son is a great uh, jazz pianist, um, and John Clayton is a great bassist and band leader. And so he did the arrangements. Some of his son's compositions or his son's arrangements that were then arranged for big band, orchestrated for big band mm-hmm. by John, but it's interesting you know because very different here in new york you know if we had a gig uh you know like we're, we're doing this thing this week you know so we each night we're playing different music and we re- rehearse for each night maybe three hours you know yeah and in this case this past week at wdr we rehearsed recorded we work in a recording studio monday through friday and then we had the week of saturday and sunday off i went to play in naples italy and then we did a run through of the music on monday also recording and then we had a concert on tuesday night and it's just one concert you know mm, and it's, a it's it's a dream situation for music cuz in, in new york yeah, it's luxury, and it's very yeah. interesting but it's, it's it's actually it's a it's a very it's it's very different cuz i coming from this environment i think maybe i'm a little high strung you know being in new york <laughs> yeah, for 12 I years can't and can't understand why and, that would be the case yeah right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know it's a very different uh, system you know uh, but you know it's and also you're sitting every day you know we don't record every single day but you know generally a few days a week with a microphone in front of you you know yeah um and you know sure. and and you know the red light that goes on, and they say, OK, you know, here we go. And, and it's, it's, I really I love recording, so it's kind of cool to get to record almost every day.
0: Totally. You guys, uh, you guys are both young, you have, you know, like we've talked about, you have achieved so much uh, in your career already. If you were to look forward to the next 5, 10, 20 years, what are some of the goals that you guys have uh, musically that you're, you're looking towards?
2: Um, much like Marshall, I'd love to be um, playing my own music in a small group setting with my band, Catharsis. Um, I feel like I finally um, i've I've always been a firm believer in like working bands and the kind of magic and chemistry that comes from that. Um, so I've finally sort of found that, that it's not easy to do, you know, even with as many great players in New York, finding the right personnel and the right. really, the more the, the bigger thing is the right concept musically from a compositional perspective. um, so I feel like I finally have something that I really enjoy writing for and working with. and Um, So, yeah, I mean, I hope even within the next year, I really hope to um, be touring with that band on a semi-regular basis. So Mm -hmm. we've got our first tour. For me, it's the first tour ever as a band leader um, down to the D.C. area in August. Nice. Playing, yeah, playing down there. So I just hope to do more of that. And, uh, you know, oftentimes that means working with universities since there's a budget typically at universities to help fund tours of of that nature.
3: Very cool. Yeah, for me, I, I mean... I've said it maybe three times, but playing my own stuff more is definitely a, a goal for mm-hmm. me. Um, I'd actually also, I'd like to, you know, I work work on a lot of classical stuff, and one project I'd like to do is actually a, is, is I want to write a bunch of music for, for for solo trombone and piano and actually record it. Mm. Cool. Um, and, and kind of be a, kind of uh, not necessarily, sometimes I feel in the classical trombone community it's, just, it's such a kind of, uh, Attitude like this is the way you play this stuff, you know. And so, um, and I kind of want to write something that maybe kind of takes a little bit from the jazz. My jazz influences also harmonically speaking, in terms of the piano parts, but also, um, also playing wise, though in articulation wise and stuff, and apply that, you know you know sometimes i'll practice uh, like the Roshu etudes with doodle tongue and stuff just to try to hmm. get it really smooth you know huh. but uh and, and i remember when i was in high school I had, I, I at at interlock and they on the jury, i had this one and i played really fast and they they said what kind of articulation are you using and, <laughs> and you know and i then i said i said doodle tongue like, oh no 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 that's not <laughs> <it's like>, cool <laughs> it's not really smooth but but yeah, since it's yeah. uh, you know it's yeah, like, but right. but, um, yeah. but yeah good, but we can't have the word doodle used <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> just,
1: yeah
0: yeah it
3: just doesn't work <laughs> um, <laughs> So, but actually, I mean, I'd like to do that. And, and another thing actually I would I, that I really enjoy that I don't get to do too much of is I really enjoy teaching um, and going forwards, I'd actually like to do more and have the chance to um, to teach more, maybe on a more regular basis. Now I find most of the time I get to teach I'm and maybe invited to a school for a couple of days and it's mm-hmm. kind of come in, do a master class and get out. You know? mm-hmm. But um, I think, um, you know, what I found is that, you know, uh, for instance, Ryan and I both had the chance to teach at the the Brubeck Institute in California, which is kind of a it's in their summer jazz colony, which is a, a very small program, maybe twenty or twenty four yeah. students, and, and it's all kind of the top kids in the country. And if they get in, and, and being around people like that, kids like that is so inspiring, mm. and and getting to share with them, but then they s- tell you something, and you're like, oh, what's what's that? <laughs> you know, show me, what did you just play? And, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, you know, I would really like to have the chance to do more of that because I really I really enjoy it. And,
0: yeah good stuff well i'm quite confident you guys will both be achieving all of your goals as you have uh, up to this point uh as we close out today um you know the the music business i've certainly seen it over my uh 30-year career uh it's changed dramatically in the last especially the last 10 years but certainly even in the last 15 to 20 years Um, and you guys have managed to continue to forge you know great careers and i use you both as examples when i go out and do master classes that it's not impossible it's very possible but this is the level here. We're talking about Marshall Jokes and Ryan Keberle. It's You better be ready to go if you're coming, uh, coming <laughs> here. Um, if you had a piece of advice that you'd offer for younger players, obviously your talent is without question, but other things factor in, intellect, likability, yeah. professionalism, Huge all problem. those things. If you could just give you a quick, here's what I would suggest to a talented player out there who's thinking about uh, going into music, what, what would that advice be?
3: Stop, no, don't do it, no, um, uh, yeah, well, actually, like, I I do find sometimes these days, I think sometimes people are actually so worried, even in school sometimes, I see, like, teachers talking about more about business than actually the practicing part, you know, Hmm. and I don't know, I think I always felt like, um, you know, sometimes I get frustrated, or, you know, you can, one can get frustrated, and you see, oh, how did, well, how does that guy get to do all that stuff, and here's he, you know. But i I kind of have a at least my own i don 't know if I have a, f- a philosophy but uh it sounds sophisticated yeah, sure. also <laughs> my philosophy is that I kind of feel like if, if you keep on work working hard at what you do um, um, then eventually things are going to come your way you know I, I feel like you know it has to has to eventually work out I, or somebody has to if you're working hard and and you know somebody has to take notice of them um, and another part of that though is i i i felt really lucky um, you know, I, I think a really important thing is not to turn turn your nose up to things, you know, mm. opportunities, you know, you never totally. know where it's going to take you. You know, uh, I mean, m- playing in, like in, in Latin music and salsa music, I mean, it was a huge influence on my music, on my writing and my playing, um, rhythmic concept and I mean, stuff I love. Actually, I really miss doing that, having the opportunity to play those gigs and stuff. Um, and my, my point being is I think, you know. I, I still have that attitude. Some, you know, maybe sometimes too much. Somebody said, "Hey, can you do this?" Yes. Yeah. Oh, wait, oh wait, what is it? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait a second. I, you know, but I mean, but I, you know, especially at a young age. My thing was just like, yes, yes, Definitely. yes, yes, yes. yes you know? Never
2: what say no. It? If you say no, you're in trouble. Yeah, uh, I mean that's a bad sign. Even the great it. Will Lee, who's you
0: know been the yeah. greatest baseball one of them in, in history. You know his. And he's working every night, and he's doing Letterman. But his philosophy is, I didn't come to New York to say no. Yeah, and that's what he says. And he's, yeah. and it's, uh, if exactly Will Lee right. has that attitude, then I think you're absolutely. absolutely right. I mean, granted, there
3: are some exceptions. <laughs> yeah, but, but but a <laughs> general, especially when you're young, you know, yes, and it's and and yeah, you know, exactly. you either you mean you learn every, you learn so much from every musical experience, you know, and yeah, um, whether you know, I I feel like you know. You know, I, I love the pressure of like going, when I was in New York still, like going to play a Broadway show the first time. Mm-hmm. If you're subbing, you know, totally. and because you sit at home with a, maybe a book and a video, or the <laughs> but you sure. know, but you have to walk in and nail it, you know. Yeah. And if you and if, if you don't, you're not going to get called back, you know. And if you do it, if you don't do it enough times, you're never going to get called for that stuff. But um, but I, I think all these different opportunities, and I I feel like being involved in an opportunity like that, or they all make you a better musician, you increase your mm-hmm. musicianship and. In, in, and I think all of that even is relevant to to be an improviser, or being a jazz player, because you're hearing, you're constantly hearing new melodies, and new diff- different ideas, and maybe different rhythmical ideas and stuff, or different feels you're playing with. You know, so.
2: Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, maybe just to like add a, add a few more thoughts to what Marshall already said. Um, I think what what you said is exactly true, but it's assuming that the student already knows how to learn and listen, and and is self-critical. I mean, I find a lot of students kind of think they've got it together, you know, and that's a really bad attitude to have at any age and at any level. I mean, I think the best players, hands down, are always the ones. It's not just a matter about being hard on yourself, but it's a matter of being an eternal student and always looking to, t- to find those lessons, because a lot of people don't find those lessons. A lot of people play those same gigs and just leave, and they're, OK, that's it. That's, the ne- that's done. Let's go to the next gig. But, so being open to learning from every, from every experience, being self-critical, constantly trying to figure out what you can do better and how, and spending the time to do that, You know, dedicating the time to do that, having patience, as you said as well, if you just keep sticking with it. If you're doing everything right, it's still not going to happen fast. You know, you've got to have patience. And, you know, a lot of my friends who are doing what I would like to do, they're, they're, they are doing it now, but they're 45 years old. I'm 32 years old, so it's like thinking, okay, is it going to take me 13 more years to get to where I want to go? And probably will. I mean, it's, you've got to have that patience. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and then coming back to it, I think before all of that, coming back to the listening part. I mean, what I've learned teaching here at Hunter, um, because I deal with a lot of non-musicians, is the incredible diversity of listening ability. It's really amazing what we hear and someone else doesn't hear. And that's probably somewhat obvious between musicians and non-musicians, but what, when I started thinking about it, I started paying more attention to it even amongst musicians. And it's amazing what, how people hear things differently, even things that, in, at least in my perspective, aren't really subjective. I mean, things that, to me, are very black and white, and I hear it one way, and, I, and they hear it another, or they don't hear it at all. That's the big thing. And so like training your ear to be the most astute and focused, intensely focused, and, and observant listening device as possible. And I think that's, that, that's a never-ending thing. I mean, I'm hearing stuff now. I'm hearing, just recently, like the last couple of years, I'm hearing so many versions of swing that I never used to hear. Like you know, I'm starting to finally understand. Like what you know, some drummers talk about is you know this guy swings that way, that guy swings. That way. I mean, you, I could always just maybe feel it. Maybe that's important too, being connected with the feeling. But now I'm starting to actually hear it in a in a technical and kind of and kind of um in kind of um uh, you know uh, uh, codified way. Like like I'm hearing things and knowing what's what's different because I'm able to hear it at that level. So just developing your ear, and I think that just comes with listening you know listening to music listening to, and in a, in a in a in a focused way mm-hmm. like never listen if you're if you want to develop your ear never be listening just casually you know and that doesn't mean it's not fun a lot of people i say that to people and they're like yeah but i just like to listen for the fun of it and it's like yeah well you can do both i mean to me it's way more fun to listen now because i'm hearing so much more i mean it's fun to listen in a focused way yeah. you know and in a detailed way
0: yeah that's well both the uh, fantastic advice well Listen, I want to thank both of you. It's been fantastic. I feel like I learned a ton, so oh, I know sure. people tuning in uh, <laughs> got a ton. Of, no, it's really great. Well, you let guys me just say great. I've
2: learned incredible amounts playing next to you. Wow. Well, yeah.
0: Thank you, Ryan. It's, it's very kind to be safe. But uh, um, these two gentlemen, keep an eye on them. Marshall Jilks, Ryan Keverly, go to their websites, hear them with their own groups out uh, touring, see them with Maria Schneider's band. They're going to be making a lot of noise for the uh, next several decades. So. Uh, Uh, keep an eye on Marshall and Ryan. Uh, We want to thank all of you for uh, watching today and we will see you next time on Bone to Pick.